0: The idea is to um, learn from history and tradition and evolution and then learn from science and clinical work and then combine those two things and that's really uh, when you see the how oh, we come up, I came up with the recommendations.
1: Hi, my name is Rangan Chasji, GP, television presenter and author of the best-selling books The Stress Solution and The Four Pillar Plan. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of my Feel Better, Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chaschi, and I am your host. So what do we need to eat in order to live a long and healthy life? My guest today is arguably one of the world's leading researchers in the field of longevity, Professor Walter Longo, who in this week's episode shares his views on diet and nutrition. We talk about high-protein diets, ketogenic diets, and Volta gives his view on low-carbohydrate diets. Volta, like myself, believes that we have oversimplified nutrition by looking at macronutrients such as fat, protein, and carbs in isolation. And just as there are good fats and bad fats, some that we should be eating more of and others less of, the same is true of carbohydrates. Finally, Walter talks about fasting and his novel approach to research, what he calls his five-pillar approach, whereby he takes ancient knowledge and wisdom and marries it up with the latest cutting-edge science. This is the approach he used when formulating the fasting-mimicking diet, a five-day plan that causes the body to go into fasting mode. Towards the end of today's episode, Walter talks about the amazing benefits of his fasting-mimicking diet such as reducing visceral fat, abdominal fat, and potentially its utility in helping people with autoimmune conditions. Although not all aspects of the diet have been proven in humans yet, it has been shown to reduce fatty liver, insulin resistance, and even improve some autoimmune conditions in mice. This episode is well worth a listen to the very end. I think it's really important for me to state that the bulk of my conversation with Volta today It's around the optimum diets that we can consume in relation to longevity. Volta's recommendations are not necessarily the dietary ones that we might make when someone already has an existing issue like type 2 diabetes and I do think you should keep this in mind throughout our conversation. In addition, Volta is a world-leading researcher. He is not a practicing clinician so a lot of his views are based from a research perspective rather than a clinical one. I think this is an important distinction as sometimes in the trenches clinicians like myself will have different views when compared to researchers who are primarily based in labs. You see, nutrition is a complex and hotly debated field. Many leading researchers share different views which clearly can make it tricky for the general public. Not everyone listening to this podcast, I am sure, will agree with all of Walter's recommendations. But I do think with someone of his calibre, it is well worth listening to the points that he raises. Now, before we get started, I do need to give a very quick shout out to our sponsors who are essential in order for me to be able to put out weekly podcast episodes like this one. Athletic Greens are one of the main sponsors of my podcast. Now, I prefer that people get all of their nutrition from food, but for some of us, especially in our busy modern 21st century lives, this is not always possible. Athletic greens is one of the most nutrient dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. So, if you're looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of athletic greens which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So Volta, I think the the best place to start is where did your interest in longevity come from?
0: The interest, uh, I think it was always something that I had in the back of my mind. And um, and I was uh, 19, um, and I was at uh, in Texas, University of North Texas, studying music. And um, you know, for for some reasons, the, the different reasons, I uh, didn't want to continue uh, with music. And um, and so uh, I immediately said, I want to study aging, and I want to um, and I want to study biochemistry to get to aging. So, so, I switched from music from jazz performance to biochemistry, and it was a little tough at the beginning but uh, but then uh, but then i I managed yeah.
1: oh fantastic well, I think that 's something we both share i 'm also a very very keen musician, and i am well aware from uh, listening to some of the podcasts that you 've been on previously that you also have a a love of music in fact, what really interests me in your book um, on page ten in fact, it says as an example of how my music training informed my scientific inquiry, here's one of my favourite analogies. And I found that really interesting that you were comparing your experience as a musician and how that helps you be this sort of scientist that actually is considered to be one of the leading researchers in longevity in the world. I wonder if you could just share um, what is the similarity in music to studying longevity
0: yeah so i think that um the um the music the composition for example it's a very good uh, training to have because when you're composing something that's something that i mentioned in the book uh you're really forced to say let me go into territories that nobody has, has quite gone into this way right so you're already starting by saying i want to discover something new. I want to be in a, in a place that uh, hasn't been explored before. And that's, that makes a big, big difference as a scientist, because lots of times, as a scientist, you're trained by somebody else, and the tendency in the scientific world is to go back to, where, uh, to what you learn, right? So you learn certain things, and then you kind of want to continue that and expand it. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's very important to do. But it really doesn't uh, open up new territories. As a a composer, you're thinking, what can I do that Um, hasn't been done before? Well, where can I go here that hasn't been uh, explored before? So that makes a a big, big difference. And I think also just the the music. uh, I didn't talk about that so much in the book, but but we know that the brain development uh, is is uh, affected by the training, the musical training. And so certainly the brain functions a little bit differently in in those that have been uh, uh, trained to be musicians, especially starting at an early age.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's super interesting. And also it makes me think that, you know, I'm a medical doctor and, you know, you come out of medical school learning certain hard truths to be the case. And, you know, often we find as we go through our career that, we're basing everything upon the fact that everything we learned at medical school was correct. And sometimes you actually, that can be limiting in terms of, um, you know, when you think what might be possible. So you almost have to unlearn a little bit before you can move forward. And I guess you're saying that in a similar way that actually, sometimes particularly to make some really profound new breakthroughs in aging or anti-aging science, you maybe have to think about things in a slightly different way. Um, so before we get into the nuts and bolts of your research, I guess it would be helpful to explain to the people listening, you know, what exactly is ageing?
0: Ageing um, refers to the time dependent uh, increase in dysfunction and, um, and usually in most organisms is associated with a exponential uh, increase in mortality. Uh, so that's uh, um, that's aging, and that's the way you can uh, assess aging is by looking at mortality rates, you know, age-specific mortality rates. So, so, what's the chance at any given time that some that an organism will die, uh, and and of course this increases very rapidly as you uh, as you get up in, in age. But essentially, at the um, aging, is, by the way, is a somewhat of a limited word. Uh, because aging can be both positive and negative. We, we always think of aging as a negative things, but uh, lots of things when they age they get better, like a violin, for example, and, uh, and wine can get better with aging and, and lots of different things. Senescence is a better word, and senescence is a more ter- technical term that really um, uh, it, it is describing uh, the, the, the time, but also the dysfunction, something getting worse if it's
1: becoming senescent, um, So so aging for humans in itself is not necessarily something that we should be afraid of. Is that that fair to say?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, now we know, for example, uh, I mean, in the book I talk about uh, marathon runners, they seem to be in their thirties, right? Uh, I mean, not the runners, but the winners of the the major marathons. And um, now we know people that are older are happier, I mean, lots of things that we, we didn't imagine uh, just a few decades ago. So yeah, there is a lots of things to look forward actually in, uh, in uh, be- becoming older. And uh, I mean, there's lots of things that you don't want to look forward for, but, uh, but there are uh, several that are actually positive and they get better with age. And the happiness uh, seems to be one of them.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, as a society... Um, whether it's, you know, here in the UK, I know you're currently speaking to me from Italy, although you spend a lot of time in America in Los Angeles, you know, what are we doing wrong societally or what are we doing that undermines longevity and undermines the aging process? So, you know, are, are there some core things that wherever you go all over the world that human beings are perhaps not doing in the best way that they could to support their longevity?
0: Yes. Yeah, so we, we are now getting very, very far uh, from the ideal uh, decision to, to live long and healthy. Uh, for example, in the United States, you have 72% of people that are overweight or obese. So almost everybody is doing lots of things wrong. And, um, and obviously, we're not meant to be uh, obese and overweight all year long. Um, back in, in th- tens of thousands of years ago, uh, we were um, uh, in many cases supposed to gain some weight, maybe during the summer, and then lose that weight uh, uh, during the winter. And now we just gain the weight and keep gaining, 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 gaining. So, immediately it's very obvious that 72% in the United States and maybe 50% of so, or so of Europeans are gaining to this very far away place in terms of the, the way and the amount we eat, and this is just the amount. Then you get into uh, what you eat, and, uh, and that gets even worse, right? So it's not just the weight, but it's also the, um, the ingredients of the food, you know. So for example, animal proteins, we're now shown to be regulating pro-aging pathways, meaning the genes that regulate aging, the function of these genes or the proteins generated by these genes is accelerated. And uh, so basically, if you have a high-protein diet, you have uh, these pro-aging genes uh, uh, being uh, more active, and so you age more quickly. Um, So, yeah, the quantity, the type, um, we're we're very, very far from where uh, the ideal uh, would be. And another thing, of course, is, as I mentioned earlier, the fasting, certain things we used to do all the time. Uh, We don't do anymore ever. Uh, Many of our uh, patients—they've never gone more than, let's say, twelve hours or so, or maybe just a little bit longer than that, without uh, having lots of food. And uh, and we're paying the price, and uh, and uh, the the results are are fairly obvious. I I don't need to uh, list them.
1: No, sure. Well, I mean, there's so much I want to pick up on. Uh, You mentioned protein there, which I think is a big topic we can talk about. You mentioned fasting. You mentioned eating too much. I mean, we will cover all of these things. Um, one thing I think it's, it's, if we start with fasting, I guess, because, you know, it would be great if you could explain it, you know, a little bit about your protocol, because I, my understanding from, from what I've read of the book is that there are some certain good, you know, principles by which we should try and live our life day in, day out, which is going to help slow down the aging process. But there's also the specific, um, five-day fasting periods, this fasting mimicking diet is what you've called it, that we, we we maybe can do two or three times a year. And I wonder if you could just expand and actually clarify uh, what the difference is and what benefits people can gain if they do that.
0: Yeah, so the, the idea is to um, learn from history and tradition and evolution and then learn from science and clinical work and then combine those two things and that's really uh, when you see the, the the how we come up, with, uh, I came up with the recommendation. So, for example, the word fasting doesn't really mean anything. It's really it's very similar to say eating. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, eating N- nothing. It could be something very good, very much, very little, etc. And uh, um, so, fasting um, is likely to cause as much problems as it causes solutions, unless you know exactly what we're talking about and how to use it, and and probably unless you have some type of medical professional, whether it was a dietitian or a medical doctor, uh, at some point guiding you in the right direction. So for example, 12 hours of, of not eating, no, no food, and 12 hours of eating, that's very good. Right? There is really very little data uh, suggesting that, let's say, you start at 8 a.m., you end 8 p.m., and that's it. You don't eat anything until 8 a.m. the day after. There's very little data suggesting that that's not an excellent choice. As you go and you start eating more than that, you go 14, 15 hours, you start seeing problems. You see problems in sleeping pattern. You see problems in uh, uh, metabolic uh, issues and disorders, et cetera. Then uh, the fasting making diet, is something, well, it's periodic. It's a diet that mimics fasting. Why is that? Why not water-only fasting? Well, water-only fasting should be done really in a clinic with specialized personnel. Uh, why is that? Well, it, it revolutionizes your body. It's like taking five, ten different drugs. Uh, you don't want to do that uh, on your own. You don't want to go to the pharmacy and say, give me a bunch of drugs. I'll, I'll just take them. And that's, and that's how, it's very similar to, to just say, I'm just going to fast for five days now or seven days. Uh, lots of people will be fine, lots of people are going to get in trouble. So uh, the fasting-making diet is really there to, uh, to simulate fasting allow people not to eat a lot, but to eat enough and, uh, and get the same or very similar effects as you would if you did the water-only fasting, and, um, and how often you do that. Well, it depends, right? So if you're somebody who's obese and has high cholesterol, high blood pressure, maybe once a month. If you are somebody that is an athlete, a 35-year-old athlete, and has a pescetarian diet, some ideal, um, you know, lots of vegetables, uh, sort of a, a perfect longevity diet, then you might only need to do the fasting-mimicking diet a couple of times a year.
1: So when you say fasting-mimicking diet, is this the five-day program that you outline uh well in, in your research but also in your book your longevity diets when you say fasting mimicking diets are you talking about that five-day protocol
0: yes i'm talking about the five-day program the, the one we tested clinically the one is also available in the uk uh, under the name prolon and um you know i don't benefit uh, financially from it uh, but uh, but there are companies that, that benefit financially and and um um, you know, at least my part, all of it goes to back to, uh, charity and, uh, and research. Um, and, but, but I think it's, it's important to, uh, to standardize it. You're a medical doctor. I think, you know what I mean? When, when you start improvise, people love everything to be free. You now they, they want everything to be free. And, and, but, but sometimes it's better to say, you know, invest two or 300 pounds a year, into something that is safe for you, is highly tested, then you know, try to do it the, the free way, and then, uh, and then getting hurt because, uh, A, you might not have had the right screening, or B, maybe your blood pressure gets to too low levels, your glu- blood glucose gets to levels that are too low, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you, uh, we made the mistake of you know, trying to make everything free at the beginning, we saw lots of problems, and then we basically said, let's stop that because uh, um, I, our uh, wish to, to, to help people is going to end up hurting people. Much better to do it with the prolonged FFD, FMD. Hopefully, at some point, you know, this will be reimbursed, uh, but right now it's not. And, and we understand that, um, that uh, not everybody can afford it.
1: Yeah, sure. Volta, uh, I, I very much appreciate all the time and effort, you know, at least 30 years you have put into research to try and advance this field and help you know, people like me and, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world live longer and, and healthier lives. And I think it's, it's just worth acknowledging you for that. Um So much I want to talk to you about. I, th- I think the next place to go for me would be, you know, you're the first scientist I have come across who talks about these five pillars and I find it really striking because you've touched on it a little bit already in this conversation, but we want to take a bit of ancient knowledge and intuition and marry it up with the later science. But you take this a little step further, don't you? You talk about five pillars by which you will assess all science and all recommendations before you feel comfortable making that recommendation. I wonder if you could just tell us what those five pillars are and why you think they're so important.
0: Yes, I thought I always thought it's really strange when, when uh, let's say somebody is accused of a, of a major crime, let's say murder, right? That we have this very sophisticated system in the court where you have to have the DNA evidence, uh, you know, maybe the cell phone evidence, the circumstantial evidence. So you have all these pieces, and then, and only then, you can put it all together and then accuse somebody of murder, for example. And uh, I always thought that it's really strange that we don't have anything like that in science, that we don't really have a method to say, hey, I think, you know, you can get out there and say, I think that uh, olive oil is good for you. Well, what, what is that based on? Is it based on epidemiological data only? So, yeah, so the five pillars are really, it's really about taking all the different disciplines and put it together to come up with this recommendation. And now, people don't need to know about the five pillars, but they need to know that that's what we use to get to uh, where we get to. Uh, and one of them is, as is, is I just mentioned, epidemiological stats. So what happens to if you take 100,000 people or a million people and you compare it to, let's say, 100,000 people that eat lots of proteins and, and 100,000 people that eat very low protein? Uh, how do they compare, and how do they compare at different ages? And um, so that's one pillar, very important. It's a really mathematical, it gives you high levels, uh, big numbers, to be able to have, make general, uh, um, have a general idea. But epidemiological data is, is now, lots of the times, can have problems, and the interpretation is very tricky. So then you have, let's say, clinical data, another one of the pillars. Randomized clinical trials. So, you know, if you're talking about, let's say, proteins or olive oil, what do you, what happens if you put 100 people and you give them lots of proteins and 100 people and you give them low protein diet? So you can actually have, uh, you can uh, um, test the effect of that change in dietary composition on, in, in a randomized way. So this is really the gold standard, and uh, but it's not always easy to do this for, let's say, an overall uh, dietary pattern. Um, another pillar is centenarians. Right? So um, w- once you uh, have figured out the things, let's say, olive oil or proteins, good or bad, uh, then you go around the world and you say, well, what about the people like Okinawa or Sardinia or certain towns in Calabria uh, or Lomalinda, the ones that make it to very old ages? Do they have high protein have low protein? Well, it turns out that they have a low protein diet, not surprisingly. And, um, and then another pillar yet is basic science focus on longevity. Uh, so if you have an idea of something that you think is going to make people live longer, well, you should be able to see this in multiple organisms like a mouse or a rat, etc., etc. So if you can show that you can make a mouse live longer, you may not be in such a a great path of, of making people live longer. So that's a very good start. Uh, and, and it's not just about, you know, a couple of months study, but it's, it's about a, a lifelong study, like the one we did for the fasting-making diet. You take mice at middle age, you start giving them the fasting-making diet, and then we show that A, they live longer, B, they have about health cancer, and C, they have about health of the inflammatory diseases, right? That's, that's a very good way to start before you move to humans. And the last pillar is complex systems, um, and that's something that I always like uh, to sort of simplify things. Think of a, a human body like a car and think of a young human body like a car that is taking, gets taken to the body shop and to the mechanic periodically, but an old uh, human being like a car that is on its own it doesn't, doesn't get to see the mechanic or the, or the body shop anymore. And uh, so you really have to be careful with it.
1: Yeah, it's great, Walter, that your that the recommendations you make have actually gone through this five pillar level, uh, which I've got to say I've never have never heard of I, I've never heard a scientist put it in those terms before. I, I really there's something about your approach that really resonates with me, um, because I guess you're saying for longevity. Well, if we're going to make a longevity recommendation, yes, let's look at short-term trials, but let's also look at what has gone on in those populations where people are living with a high proportion of centenarians, um, which I think makes a lot of sense. Do you think that, I mean, you mentioned protein, okay, and I think that's something we, we have to touch on because protein is quite a, a hot topic in the nutrition world in terms of how much protein do we need for optimal health. And you're saying that actually, in all those populations who actually have high longevity, you're saying that they are generally having a low protein intake, we know that sarcopenia, this loss of muscle mass as we get older, is proving to be a huge problem, particularly in the Western world these days. And some of the the, the sort of institutions who are making protein recommendations around sarcopenia are saying that we should maybe be having 1.6 grams of protein per kilo each day, um, which is significantly higher then I think the recommendations you make. I wonder if you could sort of uh, discuss some of your thoughts on protein and what we should do if we're, you know, if as a population we're worried about sarcopenia.
0: Yes. Uh, so um, the um, yeah, these are one pillar strategies, right? So uh, you go, not even one pillar, health pillar. Why is it a health a pillar strategy? The 1.6 grams to uh, avoid sarcopenia because first of all. Uh, the, the sarcopenia, uh, unless there is a major disease like cancer, is only, you're only going to see it in, say, 65 and 70-year-olds and after, right? And, and, uh, it, 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 and it's really important, for example, with the protein, to look at the data, right? So, first of all, most studies and most, most medical associations are showing 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight uh, per day to be sufficient, if not more than sufficient, right? There is no evidence that if you go higher than that, you're gonna prevent anything. And uh, now there is some evidence and geriatricians have gotten together uh, and, and have proposed propose that maybe one gram per kilogram body weight. So let's say that you weigh um, you know, 75 uh, kilograms and, and theoretically um, you'll have 75 grams of protein per day, um, to, to uh, be, if you're 70, 75, 80 year old, and and that's probably not a bad, as I mentioned in the book, it's probably not a bad idea, but, um, um, I think uh, if you look, uh, for younger people, um, all the data is negative, meaning let's go through the pillars. If you do a a, a randomized clinical study as has been done and you give people high protein diet, their IGF-1 goes sky high, right? And uh, so the IGF-1 is, is insulin-like growth factor one. It's a pro-cancer marker, potentially a risk factor. So probably not such a good idea. Another thing that we know from a high-protein diet is leucine. I mean, um, uh, the leucine controls TOR, and TOR is another one of the very well-established aging accelerators, right? So now you're gonna have high TOR, high IGF-1 all the time. So these are. Are pushing your body to to go 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 in an aging and growth and aging uh, direction, uh, so that that's not going to work. So that's that's clinical trial. Epidemiological data, if you look at it, um, the, most of the studies show that people that have a low protein diet are the ones that are doing better. Now, as they get old, uh, they don't do so well unless they have the moderate protein diet, and that makes sense, right? So if you're 80 years old, you don't do not want to have too low of a protein diet because sarcopenia could be one of the factors that you can encounter. Um, So the the centenarians, you know, most of them have a low protein diet, epidemiology, low protein. The clinical studies are suggesting that high protein is uh, detrimental. And let's take the last one, basic research, um, uh, focus on longevity. Guess what happens when you give a mouse high protein diet? They die early, right? They die early and develop all kinds of diseases, right? So, so all the pillars suggest that, uh, that a you know, low but sufficient protein diet is by far the best, and then a, a little bit of a com- complication is if, as you get to 75, 70, 75, 80 years of age, you have to increase the protein intake, but also not just the protein, the carbohydrates, the fats, keep a, a healthy weight, because as you start going down in weight, um, particularly if you started from a normal weight, then you start seeing problems. You know, you start seeing frailty, and uh, and and that that's probably not good. And it's not just a, a muscle problem; it's also seems like a little bit of extra fat, a uh, little bit, not a lot, seems to be good for somebody that's seventy-five, eighty years old, and they tend to do better if they have a little bit of a reserve.
1: Yeah. So, so you're you're recommending, I guess, that maybe. This obsession with protein is um, you know, certainly overplayed potentially. And you're saying that actually for the majority of us, certainly in middle age, for young age, middle age, and sort of early old age, let's say, uh, we'll benefit from having a low protein intake. But potentially when we hit 75 or 80, you know, we may benefit from starting to increase our protein intake. And I think that's I think that's a good message. for people listening to this, if they have you know, if they are elderly or they've got elderly parents or elderly relatives uh, or elderly friends, I think it is important. And I see this a lot as a doctor that uh, often, um, you know, as patients get older, they're not eating enough. They're not eating enough full stop, including not eating enough protein. Uh, That's incredibly helpful. So, you know, there's a lot of talk now about the ketogenic diet. What are your thoughts on the ketogenic diet?
0: Yeah, so first of all, uh, we need to uh, also uh, understand what we say and what people do when they hear ketogenic diet, right? Some people might think of ketogenic diet as high fat, low, relatively low protein, but most people out there are going to understand it to be high fat, high protein, low carb, right? That's how most people... Uh, will view the ketogenic diet. That's the reality, right? So when we go out there and preach ketogenic diet, most people are going to have lots of animal fat, lots of animal protein, low carbohydrate. And so very little pasta, very little bread, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so what happens there? Well, it happens, first of all, if you look at the epidemiology, you see that people that have a high fat, high protein diet, they die earlier, they have more cardiovascular disease, they have more cancer, they have all, more of all, almost every type of prob, or, or certainly lots of prob. Uh, if you look at the centenarians, none of them have a ketogenic diet. If you look at the ones that have a record longevity, um, they, you really don't see ketogenic diets there. Um, if you look at mice, um, I think the, the positive results you see when you have a high fat, low uh, protein and low carb, and then you see some benefit, but not very much. And then, um, you know, so in general, um, there is very few, uh, very few, uh, uh, very little data suggesting that a continuous ketogenic diet is going to be beneficial for people. There is a new study actually that came out, um, I think it was Lancet, showing that people that had a high carb diet. Uh, I mean high but not super high, let's say about sixty percent. they lived the longest. They were followed by people that had a very high carbohydrate diet. and then the bottom one was a low carbohydrate diet, right So so and over and over the the high but good carbohydrate diet, you know see for for example, where the carbohydrate coming from from vegetables, they're coming from legumes, those seem to be the ones that uh, where people do the best to um, uh, the best longevity-wise and
1: health-wise. Okay, great. Thank you for that. I mean, I think certainly that Lancet study, I've seen there's quite a lot of controversy over that and how that was reported. And I guess, you know, some people would say, look, I can do a ketogenic diet in a healthy way. I can have it, you know, with minimal protein, high fat, lots and lots of plant food in there. And I and I suspect that they possibly can um, but as you say, a lot of people will interpret that as a high-protein diet, and obviously you have uh, some concerns over that, which really brings to a wider point, which I think you cover really nicely in your book, and it's very consistent with with uh, where I've been going with my thinking on nutrition in the past few years, which is we've become a little bit over-obsessed with fat And protein and carbs. And we've looked at these things in isolation and uh, and I'm not convinced they actually mean that much to a lot of people because, you know, there are good quality fats that are very healthy for us and there are some harmful fats for us. Likewise with with carbohydrates, we can't really compare, you know, highly processed uh, refined bread with you know, lots of colorful, uh, beautiful vegetables, which are full of phytonutrients and lots of sort of healthy carbs. So uh, I wonder if you could just sort of share your views on this whole obsession we have these days with macronutrients.
0: Yeah, it's it's not just an obsession, it's also, I think, a media-driven need to simplify, right? People, the media loves to say uh, low, to pick something, uh, the flavor of the day low protein, high protein uh, low fa- low carbs uh, low fat so um it's almost like an obsession with uh, uh, with super simplicity right and everything that is more than low carb is too long and of course you can't do that right you can't do that with with nutrition or you can't do it with healthy longevity, so like you said, you need to go through it and say. You don't need a manual for it, you just need to learn some, some of it and, and, and follow some uh, rules. And um, So carbs are excellent for you, it should be about 60% of, of your calories in your diet, but they should mostly come from legumes and, and vegetables. And uh, uh, the rest of it is fine, some, some fruit is okay, uh, some starches are okay, you know, for example, Um, Pasta or bread or or rice, that's perfectly fine if you keep, let's say, about 50, 60, 70 grams a day. Uh, Once you start getting a ton of starches, then it's like very similar to having lots of sugar. It makes very little difference. So people, for example, confuse all the time sugar, starches, and carbohydrates. And they think that most people out there think when you talk about low-carbohydrate diet, it's a low-sugar, low-starch. They don't understand that a low-carbohydrate diet is also a low-legume diet, it's a low-vegetable diet, which means, of course, you got to get the, the calories from somewhere, you're going to get them from proteins, and you're going to get it from animal proteins and animal fats. So then fats, same thing, you know, the, the, the saturated animal fats, they seem to be clearly bad. Um, some people argue they're not, but overall, they're just not associated. Not too many people that live a long time have a high animal fat diet. You know, that's just a fact. they not the Okinawans, not the Lomalinda, the Sardinians. So that's not a good sign, right? And, and then um, how do we, if we, when you do an experiment to create a, some type of cardiovascular and insulin resistance in mice, how do you do it? With high animal fat. So that's also not a good sign, right? They say, well, if you want to make a mouse sick, give it a high animal fat diet. On the other hand, if you give it olive oil, nuts, you know, you see lots of this in, in, in people that live a long time. You see them consuming olive oil or some type of oil, you see them consuming nuts, some type of nuts. Uh, so that seems to be a very good thing. So, so again, fats Good or bad? They're both good and bad. It depends which which you pick and how much you have. So how much of of the calories should come from fat? About 30%. So 60% from from, um, carbohydrates, uh, 30% from fat, and then the rest of it is 10%. And that's where the protein come in. And uh, I think it's better to go with the grams per body weight, you know, so about 0.37 per pound or or 0.8 per kilogram, so that's a, that's a good way. And and once you figure out what that means to you, then it's very easy. Then you kind of know, like if you eat a, a little fillet of salmon, you're gonna have enough for a whole day if you're let's say a 150 pound person.
1: Yeah, that, that's great, Walter And I think you're right. We need to be a little bit more careful with how we describe these various diets because, you say, low carb, low sugar, low starch. You know, it can all get lumped in together. Let's go into the fast mimicking diets because this could be a great solution for a lot of people listening who may have tried various diets before, struggle to maintain them long-term. Your research provides a possible solution for them. So, you know, what happens in those five days and what are the benefits?
0: Yeah, so what happens is that the body, uh, first of all, goes to the central problem in, in insulin resistance, which is visceral fat, right? So it just starts taking all the, the fuel from there. And that already makes a big difference. Now we suspect, and we're going to publish on that soon, is that the liver, the fatty liver, is also affected. We don't know yet, but certainly that's a suspicion. Um, and then the, the muscle, the, the, the endpoint, or, or the, the place where the insulin resistance resides, is breaking down temporarily. Uh, and we think that is also uh, helping with the uh, f- fixing of the problem, meaning that you're getting rid of the fat in the wrong places. And then you're starting to affect the muscle where the, ins- the resistance is, is-, is uh, residing. And so the- that's where we think this combination um, is affecting uh, the, the um, uh, insulin resistance and, and the pre-diabetic uh, state. Uh, now, this is just, what well, then the other thing we shown in mice very clearly was the pancreatic regeneration. So not only is the FMD, the fasting making diet, able to uh, reduce uh, insulin resistance, reduce abdominal fat, but it's also promoting pancreatic beta cell regeneration. So if you look at the pancreas of a mouse while well, it's doing a cycle of fasting and dietary feeding, it turns on lots of the embryonic genes that were only turned on, normally they're turned on at that level when the mouse is first born. So we don't know for people yet, we have multiple clinical trials that are now either running or about to start on diabetes, and we'll find out. But certainly the the potential is that you're going to have effects on muscle effects on, on uh, fat, and then uh, uh, also the, um, the, uh, uh, the uh, yeah, so the, the effect of muscle and, and the effect of fat are the are the major ones. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, it's really, really fascinating research, Walter, and I guess in some ways it, it, it takes the pressure off people because they can actually follow, let's say, a less- a less restrictive diet, a more moderate uh, and, and in many cases, socially acceptable diets for the majority of the year. Yet several times a year, they can do your five-day fasting mimicking diets protocol and yield incredible benefits for their body, including, I think uh, I read autoimmune disease as well. Where, where are you up to in, in uh, your research on autoimmune disease at the moment?
0: Yes. Well, we want to make sure that people don't think that uh, we, all of this is done and that you, know, that you can treat diabetes like that. That's not the message. It seems like you can treat pre-diabetes with this. And so this is a message to, to the doctors. And, um, but, of course, for, for diabetes, so people that are still healthy, they don't have a disease yet, but they may get there soon enough. right? That seems to be a very good place to use it. For diabetes, we have to wait and see until we finish these clinical trials. Throughout immunities, we finished a 45-patient clinical trial. This was in collaboration with Charité Hospital. We had a mouse and human, um, mouse study and a human study in mice. The uh, fasting-making diet cycles were very effective in reducing the symptoms and even reversing um, many of the symptoms of, of uh, multiple sclerosis. And uh, in people, um, the patient reported having a much better quality of life and um, so it looks promising. This was a single cycle of a fasting mimicking diet. So now we're starting a, uh, uh, in Italy, we're starting a, a 10 hospital, a multicenter trial, a multiple sclerosis, where the patients are gonna do seven days of the fasting mimicking diet every two months. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see This randomized, uh, well, first feasibility, and then it turns into a randomized trial. Uh, but, of course, we're running um, uh, another one on Crohn's and colitis, another autoimmune disorder, and, um, and that's going to probably be both the U.S. and, and Europe. Um, and then we have lots of uh, proposals, for example, for type 1 diabetes, uh, for rheumatoid arthritis, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I, I think soon enough we will be testing uh, many different uh, autoimmune disorders.
1: Walter, one of your your recommendations when people are not doing the fasting mimicking diet is that they have a 12-hour fast in every 24 hours. It's the same recommendation I make in my book and the work that I do with people, because I think uh, there are so many uh, benefits that we can see, including including the promotion of autophagy, that sort of housekeeping process that occurs in cells uh, to mop up a lot of the debris. Is your... When you, when you do your five-day protocol, the benefits some of the benefits must come from autophagy, but what else is going on there to give such potential widespread benefits?
0: Yes, yeah, so uh, we don't know yet uh, the, the mechanisms. We know them at the cellular level, so we know that, uh, for example, as I was mentioning earlier about the pancreas, that you break down, you reduce the beta cells making insulin temporarily during the fasting-making diet. You turn on the stem cells And then when you uh, refeed normally, the stem cells give rise to new uh, insulin-producing beta cells. So that seems to be a very clear uh, mechanism. We've seen it now in multiple systems, Um, so stem cell-based regeneration. Now the autophagy, we don't know yet. How much is that autophagy-driven? We suspect uh, lots of it, or certainly part of it. We don't know yet. We need to demonstrate it. Uh, but uh, that's certainly something that we're very, very interested in, uh, the, the, the intracellular breakdown.
1: You also mentioned that um, the, the fasting-mimicking diets may help to regenerate stem cells, and I wonder if you could first of all explain to the listeners what are stem cells, and then what has your research shown so far in terms of the ability to regenerate these stem cells? So stem
0: cells are cells that have the, the ability Uh, to generate lots of different cells. For example, the pluripotent stem cells can generate many different types of cells. And uh, in most organs, lots of organs have have their own um, pluripotent stem cells. And um, so basically, the, the reason why fasting does what it does with stem cells is very simple. And so let's say you take, let's say that you uh, start stop eating right now, and, uh, and you just drink water for two months. And, uh, and then we talk again, and you look, at, in two months from now, you look going to look like a skeleton, right? And, and your organs, two months down the road, would be much, much smaller, right? Uh, c- certain, some of it, right? It's a liver, your liver would be smaller, even your lungs would be smaller, and your muscle mass. Or be small, right? So now imagine that you then start eating again, right? So you're gonna re-expand, and that's really the power of fasting. Of course, I'm I'm making this much more drastic and and, and dramatic that, than than it is when you only do five days. But let's say that you go to the limit, um, and then you come back. Well, to come back from that very anorexic, uh, uh, you know, very thin person that you will become. You have to rebuild, maybe double in, in weight, right? You may well, how much
1: do you weigh right now? Uh, I weigh about 95 kilos or so. Yeah,
0: 95 kilos. So in two months from now, you probably gonna weigh about 50 kilos, right? So, so yeah. Now imagine having to go from 50 kilos back to 95. Now think of all the stem cells that have to be activated and turn on and build your your satellite cells in the muscle, build muscle and your uh, hepatocytes, you know, uh, cells in the liver that give rise to to hepatocytes, and cells in the hematopoietic system, the the LTHSCs, hematopoietic stem cells, the cells in the nervous system even, right? We've shown that even those are, are, there's going to be partial regeneration. So, and then all of a sudden, maybe within two or three weeks from that moment, you'll be back to 95 pounds, maybe 95 kilos, maybe it'll take a little bit longer, but certainly and now when you get to back to 95 kilos, half of you is brand new, right? So, so it's just amazing. It's such a simple concept, but half of you is now completely young, right? So just you just being generated, that health has been just generated in the past two or three weeks.
1: That, that's incredible. So think about that.
0: Yeah. So that is the power. Of course, mismanaged, I mean, we don't want to do that. And this is why we really have to be very careful with the fasting making diet. So lots of people say, why don't you make it more extreme? Why don't you do this? And we say, well, our first purpose is no, do no harm, right? So people are going to live a long life. I, I, I never want to take that away from, from anybody, right? And even one in a million. So so first, you have to say, is everybody going to be not affected in a negative way? And it's not easy. And sometimes you have to make it less powerful than it could be because you don't want to hurt anybody. So, so for example, there is carbohydrates in the fasting-making diet. It's not a high-carbohydrate diet, but it's, you know, there is enough carbohydrate there to make sure that you get into a ketogenic mode, but I don't push you to the limit. I don't push you to those two months that I just mentioned. Why? Because I don't know. I don't know if you did that forget the two months, but even if you did the 10 days of water-only fasting and you do it 30 times, isn't it possible that something goes wrong, right? Yeah, it is possible. So this is why it's extremely powerful, but with all the extremely powerful things, they can work against you if you're not very careful.
1: So talk me through it, and for the listeners as well. So on those five days, what happens? I wake up in the morning and And what am i doing am i taking the prolon uh the the what is it how would you describe prolon and what talk me through those five days and also talk me through what is the compliance like do people find this difficult or is this something that most of your um you know most people you put through uh your research can actually do the 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 five day the five day protocol
0: so the the diet is um it's got, let's say, uh, lots of nuts in it, different type of nuts, uh, almond, uh, walnuts, uh, macadamia nuts, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and then there's lots of vegetables. Uh, so it's a vegan diet. It's a, it's a, I think 100% vegan now, and um, and and then has um, some vegetable chips um, and um, and other things. Uh, for example, supplements, some some omega, uh, some micronutrients that we feel are important to prevent uh, problems. Uh, but so the, the the first day is a little bit higher, so 1,100 calories. Uh, you're gonna have a, a, one of these nut bars, maybe for breakfast, and there's teas um, that uh, that are included in in the box. Um, and basically, uh, we want people to keep uh, eating, uh, maybe three times a day, uh, regularly. Um, but, um, uh, if it's not going to be as much as people normally eat, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's enough for most people to get through it.
1: And, um, So uh, it's everything Volta in the box. So you order this box and have you got everything you need in terms of the food that you consume for five days?
0: Yes, you have everything in the box and that's also good, you know, because of course you don't have to go out and buy anything for five days. And uh and people don't always realize that you also save for from not eat, buying anything for five days. Uh so that helps a little bit with the with the cost and um or it helps a lot with the cost. And uh yeah, so it's it's uh it's really everything is in there and uh you consume uh, the higher calorie day one, then it goes down to about eight hundred calories on day two, three, four, five. five. Um and then you have um a little bit of a, about 24 hours of transition uh, uh, moment where you return to your normal diet. And this is really to allow your gut to start uh, rebuilding uh, before you put lots of pressure on the intestine with, let's say, a steak or, or something like it. Or even just high sugar
1: diet. You know, this, they can put a lot of pressure on the, on the intestine. And do people, you know, can people do this whilst they're working, for example, or would you recommend they start doing this at a weekend or when they've got sort of four or five days off?
0: Yes, people can do it. Uh, I mean, not everybody can do it at work. It depends what kind of work, what kind of job you have. And so we always, um, you know, ask people to be careful. Um, so if you're a construction worker, that's probably not such a good idea. Um, you find um, especially the first and second time before you, you sort of know how it affects you find five days where you're on vacation uh, that's probably a, a, be- a better way to do it um, but then eventually um, again if you're not operating machinery etc you can do it on most jobs uh, being careful uh, and, and uh, that uh, you don't for example if somebody starts running very fast, you can pass out, right, because yeah. your body essentially is switching, is relying on, on uh, the gluconeogenesis of the liver making glucose, um, and, uh, and so you can get to that sprint, can, can make your blood sugar uh, too low, and, and you can pass out. This is why people should really respect the fact that it's a moment where you need to lay back, you can walk. You can do lots of things, but don't 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 do exercise and don't try to do anything strenuous, like uh, even in a, a, a in a job situation.
1: Walter, you mentioned some of the long term benefits of this in terms of your, um, you know, insulin resistance, maybe the visceral fat in your body, stem cell regeneration, potentially, uh, blood sugar, you know, sort of uh, harmful cholesterol being reduced, all these kind of things. But in the short term. What do people feel? Do they, you know, is it the sort of thing where within a few days of doing it, people can actually feel better, get more energy, have a bit more vitality for life, these kind of things as well?
0: Yes, lots of people say, for example, the skin looks better, uh, they can remember things better. And many of these things we're testing now, we're not claiming that this is the, the effect. Uh, uh, in mice it is, right? The mice have a, a much better improved cognitive performance. They seem to be sharper, they seem to be learning better, and, um, and this is being demonstrated in mice, but it's not been demonstrated in people. Um, so, but uh, overall, wellness is, is, is much, much better, uh, at least in the reports that people uh, give us. And, um, and, and you hear lots of stories of, for example, inflammation. Well, we, we showed in the trial that people that had systemic inflammation, high C-reactive protein, this in most cases returned to normal. And so it makes sense. That we is only this from it.
1: one cycle of your five-day protocol It returns back to normal? Three cycles. Three yeah. cycles. And I think that's a wider point, Walter, is how often should people be doing this? Or what would you recommend currently? And does it depend on their age? And does it depend on what conditions they may already have been diagnosed with?
0: Yeah, so depends on age for sure because after 70 you shouldn't do it unless you have a geriatrician that that basically says no, you're fine, you can still do it, and you can have benefits for it. And um, but then it really depends, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, um, if you have let's say systemic inflammation, your CRP is very high, you might want to do three cycles and under doctoral supervision. And, then, and see what happens, right? Did the, the, the CRP go back to normal, as we've shown in the trial? If that's the case, then you can say, okay, now everything is back, normal, back to normal. Cholesterol is low, the fasting glucose is normal. Okay,
1: don't do anything for another four months, and let's see, come back in four months, and let's see what happens. And, and when um, you say three cycles, how, you know, let's say someone does uh, today, you know, they go on a five-day fasting mimicking diet protocol, um, you know, And then they go back to sort of their normal life. How quickly can you do your second uh, round, as it were?
0: Yeah, in the trial, we've done it once a month, right? So five days on the FMD, and then let's say 25, 26 days in between, and then they do it again, and they, they do it for three cycles. But again, the three cycles should be used if you're trying to achieve a change, right? So let's say your patient is pre diabetic, you really see, or metabolic, has metabolic syndrome. You see multiple problems, and it it might not be a bad idea to say, let's do three cycles and let's see if things go back to normal. If they do, then again, let's put you on on a, so three cycles once a month uh, for three months, then wait a week, and then do the test again. If everything uh, goes back to normal, then great. Then you can move it maybe to once every four months and see if that's enough and if it's not enough, uh, maybe they have to do it more more frequently. And of course, lots of the times that depends on uh, what they do in between, right? So if they have a terrible diet, they don't exercise, they might need to do it once every two months. And uh, and some people might even need to do it once a month.
1: And for someone, for someone, I guess, I guess, I mean, this is self-reported, but someone, I guess, like myself, who I you know, I, I, I would certainly consider myself to be pretty healthy uh, with, a, with a very healthy lifestyle by and large. Um, how often would you recommend someone like myself might do the fasting mimicking Diet Protocol once a year, twice a year, something like that?
0: I would say you're young, you're healthy, you have, a, 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 I assume, a good diet, you exercise. Yeah, absolutely. I would say you need to do it. And this is always something that I underline. You do it when you need to do it. In your case you probably need to do it once a year. Yeah. Just to not get too far away from this need to periodically have a moment of uh, th- where the body can get rid of a lots of the the junk that it has been carrying with it.
1: Well, so I try and leave people at the end of this podcast um, with some lifestyle tips um, you know, some tips that are really going to inspire people and hopefully in you know, empower them to feel that they have got a lot of control over what happens to them as they age. Of course, people can do your fasting mimicking diet, but I just wonder if we could just finish off with maybe four, four tips is what I usually ask for, four tips um, that really summarize some of the top things that people can do to optimize their longevity, whether that's to do with food, movement, sleep, relaxation, whatever. Uh, Have you got some top tips for the people listening to this podcast?
0: Yeah, so I would say definitely a mostly pescatarian diet uh, based on the food that where your ancestors come from. Uh, so different people are gonna pick different ingredients uh, to get there. Uh, twelve hours a day fasting, twelve hours a day or of feeding, uh, and then if you are uh, overweight or obese go from five six meals a day or whatever you eat right now to two meals a day plus a snack either breakfast and lunch or breakfast and dinner and then have a snack for your third meal Um, and then i would say 150 minutes a week of exercise um, and uh, that seems to be uh, pretty close to optimizing
1: health Walter, thank you, those are some fantastic tips hopefully people will feel inspired that you are one of the leading voices in longevity and you are giving them some uh, very credible advice at the end there which hopefully most of us can try and follow aspects of that in our own life I so appreciate uh, a busy researcher like yourself giving up your time today for such a long conversation I really want to thank you Walter and I hope we get the opportunity to talk again at some point in the future
0: Yeah, sounds good, you're very welcome and uh, thank you
1: that concludes today's episode of the feel better live more podcast i really hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you feel motivated to try and apply some of volta's top tips at the end of the show for those of you who want to try volta's fasting mimicking diet you can access all the links on the show notes page for this episode at drchastie.com forward slash 55 Now I have to say as a disclaimer that I can accept no responsibility at all for anyone deciding to undertake the fasting mimicking diet. It's really important that you read all the disclaimers on the Prolon website where they say that Prolon is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any disease. Also that it should not be used either to treat type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Finally, please do pay close attention to the Is ProLon Right For Me section of the website if you wish to undertake the diet. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction to this podcast, not all of you listening will necessarily agree with everything that Volta has said. For example, the whole area of high-protein versus low-protein diets is a really contentious one in the nutrition field. And I'm going to get a guest on the podcast in the near future to present an alternate view to Volta's. I know that Volta is not a huge fan of low-carb diets from a longevity point of view, although he does mention that one should not really consume more than 70 grams of starchy carbs like rice or bread in a single day. Now, that kind of advice is very consistent with some people's interpretations of a low-carbohydrate diet. And I think therein lies one of the big problems in nutrition. When we say something like low-carb, what does it really mean? many people can eat a low-carb diet that really is rich in vegetables and low in refined and highly processed carbohydrates. As seemingly, these people do very well from a short-term health perspective and I think arguably from a long-term health perspective as well. At the same time, it's easy to follow a low-carb diet that is deplete of phytonutrient-rich vegetables and potentially a diet like this will have a very different outcome than the first one I mentioned. I've really tried to go into detail on these topics in both of my books, The Stress Solution and The Four-Pillar Plan, to really try and provide some clarity for you when trying to figure out what kind of diet to follow. In both of my books, I have written about why I recommend that we eat all of our food within a 12-hour eating window on any given day, something that Volta completely agrees with. The one thing we didn't really touch on today is the fact that in all of these blue zones where people have high rates of longevity, As well as good nutrition, they also have very low stress levels. Modern research is now suggesting that up to 90% of what doctors now see is in some way related to stress. I found that absolutely incredible. You see, modern day living can be really stressful and stress is very toxic for most organ systems in the body. This is one of the main reasons why I wrote my new book, The Stress Solution, This really is not just a book for those people who feel that they are stressed. I think the book is applicable to absolutely everyone because stress affects pretty much all of us these days. And in my book, I help you to identify where the stresses live in your own life and then give you some actionable tips to help you overcome them so that you can live a happier and calmer life. You can pick up a copy of The Stress Solution in all the usual places in paperback as well as as an audiobook, which I am narrating. As always, do let me know what you thought of today's episode and if you do enjoy my weekly podcasts, one of the best ways that you can support them is by leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. You can also help me spread the word by taking a screenshot right now and sharing with your friends and family on your social media channels or you can do it the old-fashioned way And simply tell your friends and family about the show. However you choose to do it, your support is very much appreciated. A big thank you to Richard Hughes for editing the podcast and to Ali Ferguson and Liam Saunders for the theme tune. That is it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back in one week's time with my latest episode. Remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.